you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts once again. We have made our way to chapter 6. We'll begin our reading this morning in verse 8. Again, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 6, will begin in verse 8. And we'll be reading uh, one of the more lengthy texts that I have uh, uh, taken upon myself to to preach. Uh, We're going to be looking at the entirety of uh, what uh, Stephen uh, says before the council, before the Sanhedrin, uh, and going all the way uh, through until his martyrdom. And so we'll be reading all the way into chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, do, not, uh, do not panic. Uh, just because it's a long text doesn't mean it's necessarily uh, going to be an extra long uh, sermon here uh, this morning. But I thought, as I always do in selecting the portions... How, how do you divide up? And you can always preach uh, small sections of Scripture, and uh, oftentimes we do that. And sometimes we preach the larger portions because we believe it goes together. It tells a, a story. We complete the episode, uh, so uh, to speak. And so we find this account of a man that we were introduced to last week in the first verses of chapter Six and, and there uh, he was described as one of seven men who was of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. And they were appointed to a particular task. And having read that and studied that last week and the, the, the whole concept of their uh, practical ministry uh, to the widows uh, of that church in Jerusalem, it's almost a, a shock when you come to verse 8 and and find him once again mentioned and described, and we see him boldly, with great courage, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will ultimately become the first martyr of the church. Now, he is not the first of the men of God and the people of God to have been killed over the course of history that preceded the church, but at the inauguration of the church with the day of Pentecost, he is the first, and he was not, and he will not be the last. That it, it is characteristic of our age that the truth of the gospel, that it ignite evil passions, it brings about Uh, hatred for the the messenger because of uh, the message. And many, even as we speak here today, experience something that is largely foreign to us in America. That is, they preach the gospel. They worship their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with the reality that someone could step in and again, exact violence upon them, either in the name of some type of uh, vigilante or even in the name of a, a government that has determined to be hostile uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Stephen's martyrdom does nothing to quench the Spirit. It is, does nothing to halt the progress of the gospel. In fact, it is his martyrdom that ignites the church and propels them from Jerusalem into Samaria and then throughout the known world. 
So let's look at our text this morning and think about uh, this great reality of one who would be so filled with the Spirit that they would preach the message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not back down in the face of their enemies. They willingly and joyfully uh, went uh, to death. And again, they were the first of many that for the sake of the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they went willingly to their deaths. Read with me, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after, that, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be soldiers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation and that they serve, say God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. In the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. 
But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile uh, them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard the groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your god Rephon, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as... Uh, he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua, Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
And yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Pray with me. Father, once again we thank you for your word. It is surely the testimony to your grace, the testimony to the power of your Holy Spirit, the testimony of your power to raise your Son from the dead. And it is in light of these truths that we live, it is in light of these truths that we proclaim, and Lord, should it be necessary, we pray that these same truths that emboldened Stephen and so many others so long ago would be that which would strengthen us for that which lies ahead. May we indeed, Know your grace and know your power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For several weeks I mentioned the, the theme, the title of the gathering storm. That is, that as we read the book of Acts, and certainly those that lived the, the events of the book of Acts, uh, were certainly aware that there was about to be a storm of affliction that was going to break upon them. We have seen a couple of episodes in which uh, the apostles themselves uh, were called in before the council, before the Sanhedrin, and they, they were warned to not preach of this Jesus that had been raised from the dead, that, that this Jesus who you say is the Son of David and the Son of God, He is the rightful Messiah, we will hear no more of Him. And yet, they continue to proclaim this truth. And so we come here to uh, the very doorway uh, that Luke will take us through that is going to 
take the gospel throughout the known world. That, that missionary impetus is going to begin with the martyrdom of this young man, Stephen. He is described here in this first section beginning in chapter 6, verse 8. I call it the conflict and the conspiracy. We see Stephen described as the, the faithful servant. One who was full of grace. That is that God had so transformed him, had so filled him with the Spirit that he exuded, I believe, what uh, Paul would later characterize as fruit of the Spirit, that, that he was at peace with who he was, who God was, and what God had ordained for him to carry out. And that, that grace by which he was saved was a grace that was working powerfully in him to both bear witness in a powerful way, but to actually seemingly continue to demonstrate uh, God's power in, uh, by doing wonders and signs, that, that, that these things were actually extended uh, to these uh, very close associates of the, the apostles. And so, he's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's ministering, and God is working through him uh, to, to perform uh, supernatural uh, signs and wonders. And while that is going on, seemingly there in verse 9 we see the identification of Stephen's accusers, and it seems like they were likely of at least his own countrymen, that, that it's very likely that uh, Stephen was of the, uh, the Grecian, the, uh, the Hellenistic uh, Jews, and we see a, a listing of the various groups represented. There's some commentators that think there's simply one synagogue uh, that was comprised of these di divergent groups, or it's possible there were multiple synagogues. But whatever it was, this was likely the people to whom Stephen was ministering. And as he was ministering to care for these widows, he was doing what else? He was proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He was proclaiming that this Jesus was crucified and that God had raised him from the dead and that salvation was only through this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these men turn on Stephen. And notice, the, look at verse 10. I, I like this. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. They just they couldn't tolerate it. They couldn't stand it. The, the truth always aggravates and so many times incites those who persist in their rebellion against that truth. And it's interesting, he's, he's speaking, he's preaching to Jews that there, there were a lot of things that they could have agreed on. Uh, about God and about the, the law. But yet, they could not agree that what Stephen was presenting, that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that had been anticipated in that which they believed. And so they, they were furious about this message. They, they, they were being exposed for being hypocrites, they were being exposed as uh, not believing the truth. In fact, they were believing a lie. And so as he's 
proclaiming the truth. We always need to be reminded. I think it's a good reminder for this day that the truth always corresponds to reality. When we say that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that is a true statement. Why is it true? Because the Bible tells us? Well, yes, partially because the Bible tells us. But it is true because it corresponds to what actually happened. Okay, There's a one-to-one correspondence between that affirmation and what actually happened in time and space and history. And what it means is that, again, salvation is available in Jesus Christ and available exclusively, uniquely, and only in Him. And so, the truth always confronts lies and false presuppositions. In fact, they would have very quickly have affirmed and confessed that, indeed, we are the righteous people of God. They did not want to hear that they were sinners in need of a Savior. And the truth about Jesus Christ is always a universal indictment of the guilt of all men. Now, again, if we preach a gospel of self-improvement, that you're really a nice person, you're not a perfect person, but you're really a good person, and you're really a nice person, and I think if you would just add a little bit of Jesus to your life, then, then your life would be great. See, that's palatable. That, that is acceptable to, to the world. But when you say that you are guilty before a holy God, and it would be just, it would be right, in fact, it would be a holy act for Him to condemn you to hell forever, well, then you've gone and offended somebody. But again, that is the truth. That is the biblical truth. And so, Jesus is ultimately truth incarnate and that truth exposes every lie and every error and so in doing that the world has always been provoked and they have always been hostile as we move into this whatever you want to call it postmodern realm or whatever name you want to give it increasingly we're going to find that the world is going to be hostile to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have to come up with some type of defense mechanism. They can dismiss the message, well, that's not, it's not true or it's not applicable. Uh, in my case, it's irrelevant or maybe it's true, but I'm going to deal with it later. Uh, they, they may uh, just say that, uh, well... I think there's some truth there, and maybe I can kind of reshape it a little bit and make it fit for my life, make it something that I can kind of accept and agree upon. Or you try to destroy the messenger. You try to shut him down. You try to quiet him. And we can see that that's what's about to happen here, that, that they are so offended by the gospel, so offended by this messenger uh, from God, that they are moved, they are motivated, they are infuriated to the place that they would carry out murder. And so they come up with a, a scheme, we're told here, in chapter uh, 6, beginning there in verse 11. They go out and they enlist others. They, they uh, contrive 
a conspiracy to get others to say of Stephen that he is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They're, they're going to stir up people again, and they're going to become false witnesses. They're going to be willing to, to lie because to, to probably earn favor uh, with the council uh, and among themselves in this uh, Hellenistic uh, synagogue, but they, they are going to lie in order to shut up this one who is preaching uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, what they're going to do is they're going to accuse him. Look there in verse 13. This man never ceases, ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. There, there were essentially three fundamental pillars for Jewish society. The law, the land, and the temple. And you can probably think about it for a minute. They kind of, they go together in some sense. And so they have certainly indicted Stephen for speaking against the temple, for speaking against the law, for seeing the law as fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing it in a, in a different way, uh, as uh, being uh, seen through the lens of what is now the new covenant. And so, in a sense, he is guilty of what they accuse, in that he sees both temple and law through the prism of the gospel. They saw it, the temple, as the sign of God's approval of them, and the law, that which they did, which made them right before God. And so he says, no, no, no indeed. I'm going to give you a different way of seeing the temple. We'll see that in a minute. But it's the law that actually condemns and exposes the reality that you need a Savior. And so let's look at some of these uh, accusations I've already mentioned. Uh, he, he indicts or he speaks against or he's accused of speaking against uh, the temple, uh, the law, and the land, and evidently, Stephen, in his preaching, in his instruction, alluded to or quoted uh, the words of Jesus himself. When he said very early in his ministry, as recorded in John chapter 2, you destroy this temple, and three days later, I will raise it back up. And again, his, the accusers at Jesus' trial brought this up, that, that, that you're here to what? Des destroy that which we cherish and not only are you going to destroy that which we cherish namely the temple but you're going to change the customs that Moses delivered you're going to change fundamentally the way we live the way we orient ourselves towards uh, God you're going to undermine that which we hold dear and that which upon we have established a particular ungodly, unjust hold upon the nation. And so, they indict him for all of this. And in that indictment, notice how Stephen is described in verse 15. He knows what's up. He knows these, these men have aligned themselves against him. They're lying about him. They're willing to do anything uh, to... To, to bring him into disrepute, to undermine what he's doing. And he is described as having a face that was like that of an angel. 
I'm not sure exactly what was going on here with Stephen. Was it somewhat of a natural phenomenon coming from the supernatural reality of the witness of the Spirit and the confidence in the Gospel? That is, that I'm in trouble. I'm in danger. But I have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Is it just a supernatural application of the truth of the gospel? Or is it some, something beyond that, like when Moses would come out of his meetings with God? His face would glow, and again, the people would demand, veil your face, we can't stand that glow. Not sure what all is exactly going on here, but I can say this. His face reflected the reality that he was at peace with his God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was confident of the message that he preached and he knew that his God would be faithful no matter what. To go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if you don't, we know our God is faithful. And so the high priest uh, begins to question him there and ask him, well, is this a an accurate statement about what you have been saying and that which you have been doing. And Stephen is going to answer these uh, accusations. Fifty verses in the book of Acts is devoted to uh, a sermon, an apologetic speech, a testimony on his own behalf. But this appeal, this survey, it's a wonderful survey of Jewish history, actually. It's not given with a view toward earning his acquittal. He, he is not trying to so negotiate his way around the truth and through these enemies to the place that, hey, we can just kind of agree, maybe to disagree a little bit, but we can all coexist and, and be happy. No. He's going to speak to them and he's going to prove to them that that which you believe, that which you have said that you have committed your life to, the fulfillment of all of these things that preceded him have found their ultimate fulfillment in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ stands in continuity with all that has gone before him. And he also stands in discontinuity with all that has gone before him. As we've said so many times as we come to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is greater than everything that pointed to him. He is the reality. Everything else was the shadow looking forward to him. And so let's see... Uh, what he's going to do here, obviously, we don't have time to, to get way down into the details. Each one of these sections could be a sermon in its own. I've chosen uh, not to, to do that. But Stephen is going to insist that Jesus is the promised seed given to Abraham. He is the betrayed deliverer, foreshadowed and portrayed in the life of Joseph, he is the one greater than Moses that actually does deliver his people to the land that is promised. And he is the one that's greater than Solomon who ultimately builds the house 
that was promised to David. And so in verse 1 through 8 of chapter 7, he takes up the business of the history of Abraham, the, the progenitor, the, 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 the founding father of the Jewish nation and gives a bit of the history of, of Abraham's uh, wanderings. And I was struck as I read this this week that even in Abraham maybe we see a, a glimpse of Jesus Christ as the one who, like Abraham, had no place of his own upon which to lay his head. That, that Abraham, in some sense, not exactly, patterned the homelessness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Abraham lived in faith, believing, knowing that God was going to do exactly what God had promised him he would do. That he was going to be the father of a great nation. But he died not in the reality of the great nation, but in the hope of a great nation. And there is a sense where Jesus died in that same hope. He did in fact, all that he thought was a part of his great nation left him at his death, but he died in confidence, knowing that God was going to use his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercessory work to establish and build this great nation that was originally promised to Abraham. Now, to be sure, Stephen doesn't spell out everything that I've said to you. But I believe he infers that, and I believe he expects these Bible scholars that made up the Sanhedrin, that knew it, he expected them to be able to put the pieces together, to, to figure out the obvious that was unstated. And so he moves from Abraham to the patriarchs, and then from Joseph to Moses. And I've mentioned it already there, uh, chapter 7, verses 9 through 22, the, the story of, of Joseph. In a very real way, Joseph died and was buried, and he ascended. He was raised to the place of prominence where he could save his people. Does that sound like somebody else you know? We see the entire work of the Lord Jesus Christ foreshadowed in the career of Joseph. Joseph as one that was rejected and persecuted. Do you, do you see? Now he, does, he doesn't really explain that to him, but I believe he, he knows that they get it. That Jesus stands in the line with Abraham, and he stands in line with Joseph as one who was persecuted and rejected, but having gone through that, he is now stands to do what? To save and deliver his people. And so from Joseph through Moses. And then the third appeal he makes is from Moses through the life of Solomon. And to be sure, he, he directly says that Moses even spoke of this, that Jesus is the greater promised prophet. He is the prophet like unto Moses. Moses had many failings. Failings so great that he failed to enter the land that God had promised to Abraham and the, the family, the, the, the nation. But let's be sure. Jesus is the prophet that spoke truth perfectly and perfectly leads his people from the place of bondage to the place of freedom. Namely, that Sabbath rest, the reality 
of our salvation. And so Jesus is the leader. He is the, the, the lawgiver who perfectly obeys the law and fulfills it and suffers its penalty for us. Sounds to me like he's far greater than Moses. Moses gave the law. Moses surely thought it was a, a good idea, thought it was a gift from God, but he couldn't fulfill the law. He could not perform the task of the law, and he surely couldn't suffer the penalty of the law in our place for our salvation. And so having said all of that, he now points to Solomon and explains that Jesus is the one that is fulfilling the promise made to David. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we often refer to that as the Davidic covenant. God makes this promise, makes this covenant with David, and says you're going to have a descendant that will rule and reign forever. It goes this way, 1 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now David wanted to build a house. He had an idea of a physical house. God is speaking of what? A spiritual house. A house that will endure. Yeah, the, the physical house will get built through the descendant Solomon, but again, that only is a picture. It only foreshadows the reality of the greater son of David, who would come and ultimately build this house, establishing the throne of King David forever. In fact, the angel tells uh, 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 Joseph in uh, Luke one thirty two, He shall give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of David forever. And I think, again, the, these Jews are astute enough to realize exactly where Stephen it's taken them. As I mentioned a minute ago, uh, the temple was the prize possession of the nation. They, they gloried that, that God would dwell among them in this temple. But Stephen is going to insist upon the reality that, that even Solomon knew. If you went back to uh, first. Kings chapter 8 verse 27 you would find in the prayer of dedication Solomon confessing this house is as great as it is and as much as my father wanted to build it and as much as you've ordained its building it is entirely inadequate to house the living God and so there's a greater house that is going to be built it's going to be built upon the person or in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Solomon knew this. Here, Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah saying something similar there in verse 49 of chapter 7. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? Again, they understand what? The temple is not that great. The temple is not that significant. It is inadequate to do what you have kind of projected upon it as doing and being. And even the one who built it knew that it was inadequate representation of what the fulfiller of the promise to David would actually accomplish 
namely establishing the throne, namely building a house, a house upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, many of the New Testament writers pick up uh, on uh, this uh, reality. When Paul preached on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he described God as one who does not live in temple made by the hands of men. He would go on in 1 Corinthians to describe uh, our, the body of the believer as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, describe the believing community, the church, as the temple of the living God. And here's the interesting thing. I've got a lot of thinking to do, but it just struck me this week. When John describes the new Jerusalem, he describes it in this way in Revelation 21-22. I saw no temple in it, in the new Jerusalem. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so, indeed, there is no need for a building. It foreshadowed, it reflected, it, it looked forward to. But it was not the reality of the true temple of God, the person of the, the Lamb and God the Almighty. And so this building sitting there in Jerusalem, they get it. The council gets it that Stephen is saying it's really not that important in the entire scheme of things because what the temple pointed to, what the symbols associated with the, uh, the, the temple pointed to, what all the rituals pointed to, is now here. And His name is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate and He is the final sacrifice. And so, let's look at his count, Stephen's counter-indictment, having laid out that Jesus Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of every aspect of God's promises to the nation of Israel. Now, Stephen doesn't play nice. He is really not trying to win friends and influence people here. He is not trying to th think, now, let me see how I can bob and weave and see if I can calm these people down. In fact, if you look there in verse 51, I'm not sure what being stiff-necked is, Sometimes I'll see people come into church with one of those collars, you know, and I'm assuming, I don't think it refers necessarily to physically being able to, not being able to move your neck around. But being stiff-necked is not a nice thing to say to people, okay? If you're trying to win their approval, to call them stiff-necked, in this context, is to not describe a medical condition, but to describe a spiritual condition. And very quickly, these people knew the Bible now. They knew what he was referring to. In Exodus 33.5, at the base of Sinai, the event of the golden calf, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Same concept in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 13, looking back on all of these events. You are a stubborn people, and I would destroy you. What's, what's Stephen saying? You're like the rebels that Moses led through the desert. And then that, that really wasn't enough. He calls them uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Now, God had given this symbol, the sign of circumcision, the seal, sign of the covenant, 
uh, to Father Abraham. And the Jews largely had faithfully followed that and were proud that they were in possession of this covenant sign. Stephen is saying what? That you are not a part of the covenant. You're not the people of God. You're actually outside of the people of God. Although you have been physically circumcised, you are spiritually uncircumcised. A theology that the Apostle Paul would develop more fully in the book of Romans. Again, it's not the circumcision done by the hands of men, but it's circumcision done by the very Spirit of God. And so, again, language from the Old Testament that these people under the Old Covenant were often described as uncircumcised of hearts and ears. They were rebels against God. Again, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Again, this physical act, as historic and as commanded as it was, had done them no spiritual good. And so what Stephen is saying, you have perverted that which God gave you as a good gift. You have distorted it to the place that you present yourself as righteous, namely self-righteous before God, but you're not righteous before God. You're actually guilty before God. And so look at verse 52. You're just like your fathers, okay? You do the same things. And he asked them the questions. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? We saw Jesus' own words as he interceded and petitioned over, uh, on behalf of Jerusalem. They were the ones that had done what? Historically speaking, they had killed the prophets. Here, once again, you're of the people that have killed the prophets. You're just like they are. All of God's messengers that came and proclaimed God's word, you're of those who persecuted, who murdered them. You're not the people of the covenant. You're not the inheritors of the privilege of the covenant. You're the inheritors of a tradition in which you rebel against God and destroy, try to destroy the message and the messenger of God. That's your heritage that you have. And so you received the law, verse 53, but you have not kept it. And so on the basis of what Stephen says to him, then what I call the counter indictment they carry out the illegitimate execution mob violence it's a murder plain and simple and notice how how it's described there now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him they were so out of control they were so angry that they were like rabid dogs chomping, clapping their teeth, chomping their teeth, grinding their teeth. They, they literally wanted to bite him and tear him limb from limb uh, as a vicious animal would do. And so they are now enraged. Stands in contrast, verse 55, with Stephen, who was full of the Spirit. We're told that he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You want to talk about a temple? There's your temple. In the presence of God, fully in it. And while Paul, had, Paul wasn't even a Christian here, he hadn't written this, 
But I think Stephen understood the principle. I do not count the sufferings of this life worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. That why could he be at peace? Why, why could he face these enemies? Why could he face the certainty of a painful execution? He saw the glory of the Father and the Son in heaven, and he was absolutely, fully, ultimately, completely, and finally satisfied. And nothing in this life mattered besides knowing him and all of his fullness, and all of his glory. And so, Stephen is stoned, and we're introduced there in verse 58 to one whose name is Saul. So, Luke embeds in this account something that what? A person that's going to figure very prominently in the balance of the book of Acts. And so, they take Stephen out of the city, they stone him. They place their garments at the feet of Paul. And he very much like our Lord Jesus in the same spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. I've accomplished my work. As, as a friend of mine used to say, when the knucklehead that's got the big smile and the funny hair out in Houston talks about your best life now, he would say, you know, Stephen was living his best life now. Right then, when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the rocks began to physically crush him, it did not crush his spirit, and it did not crush the church, and it did not crush the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it invigorated and it inaugurated uh, the, the moving of the gospel from Jerusalem, just as Jesus said. You're going to go from Jerusalem to Samaria and into the othermost parts of the world. And this persecution is what uh, drives that. And so, we're told Saul approved. I don't know if Paul was an instigator, that if he already had that much venom, or if he just saw the opportunity. Remember what, how he describes himself? That, that one, one that excelled in all manner in terms of Judaism. And so, hey, th this is popular. If I persecute these Christians, maybe I can get a higher uh, position within the Sanhedrin. Well, I don't know. I, I, just an interesting thought. Where, whether he was uh, just all in, on board from the beginning or whether he thought, well, th this is a good way for me to advance my career. But what it did set off is widespread persecution. The church is scattered. Stephen is buried and Saul sets out on his murderous mission against the church. And I would say this, that just as the church thrived and expanded under the assault from these Jews, the church has always thrived and expanded wherever the threat comes from. And so we see here Stephen is satisfied to die certain in the knowledge that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. That, that he, had, he, know he, he know in whom he had believed. And he was, he was willing to entrust everyone, everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. That this Jesus is the keeper. He's the inaugurator of this new covenant. He is the new and greater Moses. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He's led the greater, more perfect Exodus. And he has led his people perfectly. And this Jesus, who is the inheritor, who is the fulfillment of everything that you've anticipated, you're guilty of murdering him.
You, you have killed him. Very similar to what Peter said at Pentecost. And with that, they kill Stephen. Jesus said this to the disciples in Luke 21, verse 18. But not a hair on your head will perish. They may take our lives, but not a hair on the head of the believer shall ever perish. And so we live, as we, as we gather here today, I, th I believe we live in the spirit of those that are recorded in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. As they ask the question as to how much longer God is going to allow His church, His people, His bride to suffer. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And the response is this. They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Sometimes we talk about how does the end come. The end comes by the gospel being proclaimed throughout the earth. The end comes when all of the elect are saved. And the end comes when all those that God has ordained to be martyred for the cause of Christ has been completed. And Stephen was the first. And he will not be the last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word to us. It is true. And God, we believe that makes it worth dying for. To stand in this present evil age as men go from bad to worse. Your truth has triumphed and it will prevail. Lord, I pray that we would be those who would be full of your grace, that we would speak the powerful word of your gospel to all, that we indeed would be faithful and that we would count the sufferings of this life unworthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.